0: Hey, you're listening to Distributed Dialogues, a collaborative show between the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network and Distributed Magazine. My name is Rick. And I'm Dave. And in each episode, we'll introduce you to the people who are using blockchain technology to change the way we interact with the world around us.
1: What if you could make money trading on the outcome of the next presidential election? How would one go about selling rental properties, TV shows, or oil through a blockchain? And what exactly does it mean to be leading the race towards enterprise adoption of blockchain technology? As people begin to look at the many ways that blockchain technology can change the way we interact with the world, they begin to see opportunity. New markets can grow fast, exceptionally so, but the risk of entering a new market can be profoundly underestimated. No matter how good a company, team, or project is, if demand does not emerge at the speed and size predicted, success might be unattainable.
0: In this episode, we run the business gamut, hearing from both new ventures in the crypto space, including the team at Augur, crypto's best-known decentralized prediction market, and new moves by an older tech giant interacting with the blockchain space. In between, we speak with Trust Token, a project that allows for the tokenization of real-world assets.
1: We speak first with Eileen Lowry, the Global Program Director for IBM's Blockchain Garage, a role that puts her at the tip of the spear of enterprise-level adoption of blockchain technology by both new and established businesses.
2: Thanks, Dave, for having me. This is Eileen Lowry um, and the IBM Blockchain Garage, um, which is really an innovation hub around the world um, that we have eight different locations, and uh, happy to be here today.
3: Given the fact that IBM is not a new company in this space of mostly new companies. How have you been seeing it leverage that brand?
2: Yeah, I actually think it's an advantage at the end of the day, Um, having a broad customer base uh, and in in many regards, blockchain really fundamentally being about providing uh, trusted transactions for companies. Uh, You know, it it actually plays to our our legacy and our history in terms of having a lot of transaction processing uh, capabilities and whether that be from software through to the infrastructure to to actually keep transactions safe and secure. Uh, And so it plays to our, our history of what we've been able to do when we think about even what we've built from an IBM blockchain platform standpoint, taking advantage of. Uh, not only the open source software, but also the infrastructure uh, and the security mechanisms in which IBM has already in its portfolio. Uh, And from there, we have a broad client base in many different industries, so that we've been able to really look at what industry problems uh, exist and what clients can we then work with in an ecosystem fashion to uh, bring together to really solve these problems. And where there are new potential clients, uh, then uh, working with them and bringing our existing client base in to join those ecosystems i <laughs>
3: And uh, could you just give us a high-level high understanding of um, the sectors IBM is looking to deploy a blockchain?
2: We are focused on a, a broad number of sectors, but where we've really initially focused on is financial services, uh, where you know a lot of uh, other companies also originated. So whether it's post-trade settlements, cross-border payments, um, and then also supply chain. Supply chain's a big area of interest for us. Our global trade, our, our work with um, Maersk around global trade digitization. Mm-hmm. Um, and And more recently, Uh, with still within sort of that supply chain realm is media and entertainment. When you think about uh, digital advertising and media buying, as well as even digital rights when it comes to to the music industry. And of course, healthcare and the public sector from a government standpoint are two other major industries that we see a lot of momentum.
3: Yeah. And I I think the music sector is one area that has been explored, but it's really uh, not been figured out as far as like, what blockchain companies are trying to do and how they're going about doing it. So that would be really interesting to see.
2: Yeah, um, we did do a a project and continues to to evolve um, with uh, the publishing rights organizations, ASCAP, which is the Mm -hmm. American um, one based in New York, as well as uh, Sashem, the French publishing rights organization, and PRS in the UK. Uh, so that initial work was actually our first project in the New York City Garage that we launched. We did a workshop with both entities um, in New York, and then that has continued to build out the project and and uh, you know continue to look at how can we create uh, remove the, the friction and create sort of the the platform for reconciling certain information when you as to where you can play a song, Uh, if you know, if it's a US based artist, are they allowed to is their song allowed to be played, you know, on a French radio station, for example, and that interaction between those two publishing rights organizations. Uh, I think, like anything though, you have to understand what is going on in the industry. Of course, we've seen a lot go on in the music industry, from initial you know physical tapes. Uh, that's even starting, you know only several decades ago. there's much other medium other mediums from the past. Mm. But if you take from a tape to a CD to now all the digital streaming uh, you know entities that exist, you have to really understand, what's gone on in that industry and how uh, it's changed its business model several times over and how the business model in the subscription world is very different. So how do you take that uh, and you know, integrate the, all the other facets to the industry around royalty payments um, you know, and the artists and, and the fact that they want to get paid more uh, as well as the fact that you have to look at you know, what are the rights that they have related to those songs.
3: So, so given uh, IBM's relationship to all these other sectors, how are how are you trying to um, package the blockchain as? A service or a product or can you explain that a little bit more
2: yeah and we have a quite diverse uh, or comprehensive strategy I should say both from the open source initially uh, working in hyperledger to contribute code uh, to really progress the open sort of foundational uh, technology itself get it to an open standard um, and then we have our platform and when we uh, look at our platform that can you know be picked up and used by anyone in any industry any company large or small um, and then we have our solution layer there are certain solutions that IBM has uh, gone out And built in the case of IBM Food Trust with some anchor tenants like Walmart um, in our global trade solution with uh, companies like Maersk, uh, Worldwire in our payment space uh, partnering with Stellar, Uh, and then there are others that um, are just industry or strategic networks that we, uh, you know, have not. That IBM is not necessarily building, but that we're you're using our capabilities from a platform perspective as well as a services perspective to help. These, uh, you know, founders of these ecosystems or certain companies really build out that network and convene the network itself.
3: Also, IBM is was probably well, might be the first institutional player to come into this new market. Uh, I was curious as far as uh, the feedback that you've gotten with IBM's sort of uh, campaign to take on this word blockchain. And work with it as a technology.
2: Yeah, we've seen a lot of great positive feedback, quite frankly, uh, and it, it's attributable to all of uh, you know our, our leadership as well as the developers creating the code as well, um, from you know top. Uh, down, we've really seen a lot of uh, great feedback from our clients yeah. um, based on you know conversations that we've had, but also the analysts. Uh, Juniper Research, you know, put out some research recently, really declaring IBM is well out in front of you know the competition when it comes to to enterprise blockchain. Um, and you know, I think that that has uh, really been a great uh, help for not just from an IBM standpoint, but quite frankly for enterprise blockchain, um, because when you're you have that recognition that there is this potential and you see the progress that's happening, not just sort of the hype anymore. Um, that, that That's really great from from a whole industry standpoint for this technology.
3: Can you explain sort of the strategy IBM has in mind for using the blockchain as we progress into this maturing market?
2: Yeah, I touched a little bit upon our overall strategy in terms of sort of that open source layer, the platform, mm-hmm. the solutions and the services we provide around that. But really, at the end of the day, blockchain also becomes the the tip of the spear towards transformation in many industries, Um, be that the banking world. uh, When you've got the ability to reduce the settlement time for um, securities or you've been able to reduce the the risk and the fees associated with the cross-border payments, uh, that starts to really transform other elements to the overall process when it comes to moving money around the world or just, quite frankly as that financial transaction occurs, how does that help then um, speed up uh, and change the way in which just a transaction itself uh, from a you know from an asset standpoint occurs? So once you've been able to, to speed up the time, say from a financial transaction, how is that impacting then the movement of a good um, to be able to move that good more quickly, knowing that the money has been you know, moved and you've got the identities of, of the participants in the network. Uh, so it really lends itself to other um, additional transformation when it comes to, to industries. Uh, and we've seen that even with uh, the trade world. Um, once you've been able to, uh, again, you know, reduce the time it takes and have the visibility for a, a transaction from an asset standpoint to move, you know, now you start getting into other aspects of just the overall supply chain industry. You know, how can you now tie that back into your own and, and continue to optimize your own business process um, now that you've been able to optimize what happens between different players in the ecosystem itself?
3: And as far as trade goes, that's sort of what your project with Stellar is about. Is that correct? Could you speak a little more about that?
2: Yeah. So the project with Stellar is, is actually more focused on the payment side. Okay. Obviously, it will help um, facilitate, you know, other uh, other networks and be that trade. Uh, but Stellar is really focused on that cross border um, payments or remittance really that's occurring. You know, we've got the project that we're doing with Stellar around uh, World Wire, so our, our cross border payments, and then most recently um, the announcement with uh, around Stronghold and having that U.S. Um, you know backed fiat token.
3: Cool. Well, thank you very much, Eileen, for coming to talk with us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here.
0: The motoric rise of the cryptocurrency market has also ushered in the age of the digital asset. However, one company, Trust Token, is attempting to bring the power of digital tokenization to the $250 trillion real-world asset market. Their platform allows investors to create asset-backed tokens that you can easily buy and sell around the world. For example, gold-to-gold tokens or dollar-to-dollar tokens. We speak to one of their founders, Rafael Kosman, in a sponsored interview about how Trust Token is enabling the newest frontier of digital investing. Hey, I'm
4: Rafael Kosman. I'm one of the co-founders and the CTO of Trust Token.
3: Yeah, so I I guess the best place is always to start at the beginning. Can you tell me about how you founded Trust Token?
4: My background is on the engineering side, and I've been interested in crypto for a while. I originally got into engineering when I was in middle school and went to Stanford to study computer science. And while I was there, I learned a lot about AI and also about cryptography. So I thought those were two of the most important technologies that would affect the world over the coming decades. That was where I first got into learning about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And well, I was at Stanford, I had a chance to work at Palantir doing AI research for crime prediction and later worked at Google Brain, which is Google's AI research division. And then at the end of 2016, I left Google to start this company. And where the idea came out of was a lot of late-night conversations with my co-founders who were old friends of mine. We were looking at what was happening with Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies, and it looked to us like blockchain technology was a great platform for doing financial transactions but the types of assets that people were transacting was quite limited it was these purely digital assets like ethereum and bitcoin but it looked to us like there would be tremendous value from applying that same technology to transacting real world assets like currencies commodities equities real estate but the technology to bridge that gap between real world assets and blockchains You know, we didn't see anyone that was building that at the time. And so that's what we decided to go after. And we, you know, we founded the company at the end of 2016. And, you know, we set out to build, you know, asset tokenization for all kinds of assets. But we said, hey, we want to make sure that we are not one of these companies with just, you know, a great white paper and a lot of funding. But we want to make sure we have real customers, a real product, real traction in the market. As soon as possible and that's that's the way that we think it's you know the best to build a startup and so we asked our advisors and our investors about what sorts of assets would be best to tokenize the first product and you know we kept hearing back that we should do us dollars and part of the reason is because there's a cryptocurrency called tether it's one of the largest largest in the world and it's supposed to be tokenized us dollars but the community doesn't really trust it they're not sure that the dollars are actually there there's a lot of need for a stable coin that everyone can trust. And so we announced TrueUSD about four or five months back, and it got listed on several of the major cryptocurrency exchanges, such as Bittrex, Upbit, Binance, and you um, know grew to over $40 million of market cap within just a couple of months. So um, we're right now growing that product, but we're also looking to launch other currencies and other
3: commodities later this year. Can we take a step back? Can you explain what TrueUSD is? Is that your stable coin?
4: Yeah, absolutely. TriSD is the first asset token that we've produced. And it's a stable coin that's redeemable one-for-one for, one for US dollars. It's listed on top crypto exchanges, such as Binance, Upbit, HitBTC, Bittrex. And it's traded by traders globally today. You know, it's useful not just within crypto. It combines a lot of the advantages of, uh, you know, assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum, but with the price stability of the US dollar.
3: What is the future you see true USD and other tokenized assets enabling?
4: We see TrueUSD and our upcoming asset products as building blocks for a new financial system, which can be more open and more transparent and more trustworthy than what we have today. We already have people taking TrueUSD and they're using it in e-commerce. They're using it in in exchanges. They're using it to build derivatives. they're using in all kinds of new financial products and new applications that we haven't even imagined. And when we see that, you know, every time we, we bring a new asset online, like when if we release true euro or true yen or true gold or true silver, you know, these assets are enabling a whole new way to build financial products and financial applications where you could have, let's say, a, a derivative smart contract, and that. That smart contract can be inspected by anyone, and you can see the underlying tokens that that smart contract is holding. You can drill into it, and you can inspect the underlying true USD or the underlying true gold. And so you, what you end up with is you know, financial architecture, which is built on a much more solid foundation than the system that we have today, which is you know, largely built out of legal, legal contracts that you have to be an absolute specialist to be able to understand, oftentimes.
3: So what is the team working on all together?
4: I'm the CTO, and so I work most closely with the engineering team. We've got a team that manages this web application where people can purchase and redeem TrueUSD. And then we've also got a liquidity team that is providing liquidity on the exchanges where TrueUSD is liquid in order to help it be stable at $1 and always have liquidity for the traders that want to buy and sell it. Um, Across the rest of the company, we've got a compliance department, which is every day working to make TrueUSD more secure against um, possible fraudulent use cases. Um, We're also growing TrueUSD by listing it on more exchanges, um, getting it into the hands of more traders and funds and OTC desks every day. And that's what the corporate development team is spending a lot of their time working on.
3: The idea of being able to, to tokenize any asset in the physical world is kind of mind blowing. Can you give me sort of a wider scope of what Trust Tokens platform means to users?
4: Yeah, the end state that we'd like to get to is to the point where we can be helping to tokenize the long tail of assets. For example, individual pieces of rental property. Um, where we could tokenize the rental property and the token holders could get access to a share of the rental income. Now, we're, we're still a ways away from being able to do that, but we think that that has the potential to enable a huge amount of liquidity and to open up asset classes such as real estate to a huge number of investors that could not formally
5: access
1: them. Lastly, We got the opportunity to sit down with the young, dynamic duo behind Augur, a protocol for cryptocurrency users to create their own prediction markets. Jeremy Gardner and Joey Krug have worked in the cryptocurrency and blockchain technology space for a long time. They speak with us about what it's like to create a potentially groundbreaking piece of blockchain-based software from the ground up. So my name is Joey Krug. I'm co-CIO
6: at Pantera Capital, where we invest in projects in the cryptocurrency space and also helped start a project called Augur, which is a platform for prediction markets on Ethereum.
5: My name is Jeremy Gardner. I am currently a managing partner at Awesome Ventures, a hybrid venture hedge fund I started about three months ago. And previously, I was at Blockchain Capital as an entrepreneur in residence, worked with Joey at Augur, and my first foray into the crypto space was founding the Blockchain
3: Education Network. So I was interested in learning more about Augur for people who are less involved with cryptocurrency. Can you try and explain it?
5: I can give you my one one sentence pitch. Um, A decentralized prediction market, which is what Augur is, is effectively an unstoppable online betting platform that predicts the future. Similar to a stock market, people are buying and selling shares in the future outcome of an event, as opposed to what you believe the future price of a company will be. In that event, it can be a geopolitical event, it can be the weather, it can be the outcome of a sports match. uh, It can be on anything that is publicly determinable in the future. The price of a share in a prediction market is relative to the number of shares being bought of each side of of an outcome. So let's say people were betting on whether France would win the World Cup maybe there were more yes shares being purchased and so maybe there would it would be 60 cents for yes share and correspondingly 40 cents for no share on Augur of course uh, we use ether so it's done a little bit differently
3: so um, to go back to how you're explaining it so it seems like the key word is anything as opposed to like a a, another online betting platform that uses cryptocurrency or accepts it this is one where you can make a prediction market about anything
5: absolutely I mean if you think about the largest asset class in the world derivatives it's just bets on the future that's effectively what these are is you can make a bet on anything that's going to happen in the future that can be determined in a resolute manner and importantly what you get is probabilities based off of the number of shares being bought of each side of those bets. And so those probabilities help you get a sense of what the crowd believes is going to happen, or what the market believes is going to happen in the future. Because if it's 60 cents for a yes share that, you know, Brazil is gonna win the World Cup, then you can assume that's that's the probability the market assigns the event occurring. And this is known as the wisdom of crowds. And it's actually a really great way to predict the future. Unfortunately, what's
3: inhibited prediction markets of the past is the resemblance to gambling. Mm-hmm. I know that you guys first founded Augur in 2014. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, that beginning story, maybe about what you set out to do? I think
6: there are three main problems that Augur tries to solve. So one is that financial markets today are pretty segregated. So the odds that you're, say, trading Apple stock with someone from China is basically zero. Uh, The second problem that it aims to solve is it's really difficult to create new financial markets, and it's very expensive. Uh, The startup cost to do that today is in the millions of dollars. And then the last piece is that these sorts of markets are very expensive to participate in, expensive to operate, all that sort of stuff. So Augur's design, we designed it to be basically a generic platform where people could cheaply create new financial markets, and then people anywhere in the world could trade or basically speculate on them. Uh, Those are kind of the problems we initially set out to solve.
5: Yeah, and if you know, the founding story probably deserves its own book, if not a movie. <laughs> but pretty much Joey and I were working on a startup that was a point-of-sale system. We had met through the nonprofit I had founded and decided to kind of pursue that venture and then ended up dropping out of the school to pursue it and ended up meeting up with a team that included uh, Dr. Jack Peterson, some others and we were working on all sorts of different things and eventually we stumbled upon a white paper for a decentralized prediction market platform called Truthcoin and Joey and I looked at this and were like this is a pretty cool idea like maybe we should step away from the point of sale system and focus on this and so we started this new venture which would become the Forecast Foundation and which would go on to create Augur it was turbulent. You know, we, we first tried to, our entire first white paper was how to build a, a decentralized prediction market on Bitcoin, and we tried doing it and it turned out to be really hard. It's not impossible.
3: Why was it so hard to build a prediction market on top of the Bitcoin blockchain?
6: Well, so Bitcoin doesn't have a lot of the features you need uh, to do any sort of like, financial application. So the way to think about it is, Bitcoin's really great at sending value around. If I want to send you $50 or $50 million, Bitcoin's a great way to do that. But if I want to enter into some sort of financial agreement with you, if I want to place a bet with you or enter into a sort of derivative agreement, anything involving escrowing funds and then later paying them out, Bitcoin's not good for that because you have to trust a third party to do that. The other option is, of course, taking Bitcoin, modifying it and adding all these features. Uh, But what we found out basically was we would have had to modify Bitcoin so much that it would have kind of been a joke to continue to call it Bitcoin. And so at that point, we just decided to try what we'd built on top of Bitcoin on Ethereum, and we were able to build it much faster. And even on Ethereum, it still took about three years to get the thing released, versus if we were still building on Bitcoin today, I think it would be you know, another decade.
5: I think we're really lucky that you know we happened to know Vitalik. I had met him on the conference, circuit. we had spoken to him uh, repeatedly, and he was actually already an advisor to Augur before we started to build on Ethereum. But as we ran into this trouble, he encouraged us to build on Ethereum nine months before it launched, which was kind of
3: crazy in hindsight, but it worked out. So you guys have touched on this, and I'm I'm sure a lot has happened, but I'm curious from where we are now to that time in 2014, um, what has changed with the project at Augur? Sure, so I think a bunch of different things. So uh, when we initially started building it,
6: we took kind of a few ideas that were already out there on uh, papers that people had published and started trying to basically kind of compile them together in one project. And we found out that a lot of the ideas in those papers, were either flawed or didn't actually work. So it's this great paper by a few guys out of Princeton called Decentralizing Prediction Markets of Lumen Order Books. It has a lot of great ideas for, you know, how do you create shares in prediction markets? How do you trade them? Things like that. It Had a few flaws though, like it didn't actually make sure that you always had the bare minimum amount of funds escrowed as, as a trader needed. Uh, which is a very bad thing for trading. You don't want to have to over-collateralize a position. And then um, on the other side, on the Oracle problem, this is the problem of how do you actually resolve the market? How do you get real-world information into the blockchain in order to do the payout? You know, plain English, did Trump win or did he not? That problem, the current kind of ideas people have proposed uh, were either vulnerable to a bunch of different attacks or had problems with scale, meaning that, you know, you required uh, people to do tons and tons of work. Each person had to do a ton of work and report on a bunch of different things. And it just was really complicated from a scalability standpoint and also um, from like a security standpoint. And so the kind of three years after late 2014 were basically spent iterating on those problems, um, you know, working with, with researchers and academics to try to find solutions to those problems and then implementing those, those solutions. And then a couple other things, um, you know, we, we were the first people to have the Solidity compiler audited, which is the language that runs on Ethereum. We were also the first people to have Serpent audited which is a language that existed before Solidity and we actually had to rewrite the entire code base because of the fact that we found a bunch of vulnerabilities in this language. So the kind of history of Augur after 2014 was 2015 we launched an alpha version on the Ethereum test network, 2016 released a beta version, 2017 was basically spent rearchitecting a lot of stuff, fixing a lot of issues, rewriting the code base from scratch because this language had so many vulnerabilities in it. And then, you know, 2018 the first, you know, 6 months or so spent in preparation for launch, things like security audits, fixing any final
3: bugs or vulnerabilities that we found, things like that. So back to what Augur is trying to solve, Uh, one like phrase that comes up a lot is the Oracle problem. Could you guys explain what the Oracle problem is? Sure, I mean if you think about
5: these betting markets, what we could do and what pretty much every other decentralized prediction market platform does is have when the market is ending, let's say the World Cup is over, they they have a single arbiter, an individual or an API that they draw on to say whether or not that event happened. But in a decentralized system, that's very dangerous because there's no recourse if that individual or that arbiter or oracle, if you will, says Croatia won. There, there's there, there's no like centralized entity that you can really go to to sue. There are no servers you can take down. There's no real recourse. And so what we went about doing to solve this problem was we introduced what I think was the very first utility token, and it's this token called REP, which is used as a form of decentralized event resolution or decentralized Oracle, which is a problem that played computer science since the advent of the web. And what it is is it's a token that people use to stake on resolving the outcome of events. It's more of a backup measure today, would you say that Joey, uh, than it was when we initially introduced it. But it, is, it ensures that in a decentralized system, there is always a method for decentralized consensus. Looking back at it, when we were creating this, we didn't want to create a token. We didn't want to do a token sale. It was really scary from a legal perspective. But we realized it was a necessity. If you've looked at how the ecosystem has evolved since, it's quite appalling what these utility tokens have turned into, which effectively are just, you know, unregistered securities offerings. But the original purpose behind uh, Augur's token and what it still serves today as is solving a need that doesn't exist within the pre-existing paradigm of blockchain technology, which is like well, you couldn't use Ether to Im- incentivize um, event resolution. You need a unique token. That's what all utility tokens should aim for. It's an absolute necessity. Where are you guys
3: today? Where is Augur today?
5: Well, so Augur just launched on the
6: Ethereum mainnet about 10 days ago or so. Since then, you know, people have been really focused, the developer team has been really focused on fixing tons of little UI, UX issues that have popped up uh, that didn't appear in the test versions but appeared on the main network. Uh, like anything else, when you do something live in the real world, uh, you have things that you never ran into. In a test environment, so that's what people are focusing on now. And then I think after a few weeks of iterating through that, then people will start working on you know adding additional features. There's a lot of kind of the first version that was released is kind of a minimum viable product. It's functional, but that doesn't mean that it's cheap, doesn't mean that it's fast, it doesn't mean that it's a great user experience. And so over the next few years, those are the three kind of big problems to solve. I think once those are solved, then you have something that's actually really worth using and pretty cool.
5: Yeah, I mean, what people don't really fail to appreciate right now is that Augur is the largest set of smart contracts ever deployed. The undertaking behind this venture was so incredibly complex. It took so much effort that people will never understand that when they go and use Augur for the first time without having that context, they think, oh, this is like a horrible user experience, uh, user interface. But what's been accomplished simply just by launching a working functional product that doesn't have any significant uh, vulnerabilities in it it, is remarkable. I mean, what these guys have done, I I left the team three years ago now, (laughs) it's been a while, Uh, but to see them actually deploy this and see it working and to be able to make markets, I mean, it is a landmark achievement and, and, and a massive step forward for this industry as a whole. Because there's not going to be a
3: thriving crypto economy unless there are really functioning decentralized applications like Augur. On that note, uh, to me, Augur seems like the most complex dApp that's on the Ethereum blockchain. And I I see a lot of potential. Once, Obviously, you need to facilitate an ecosystem where the product is working and people are making predictions constantly at some sort of daily rate. Um, But outside of that, I see potential in the future for maybe uh, using this as a way to measure voting or something like that. So I'd be curious to hear about what your intentions would be like, you know, far in the future about what what you see this product being.
6: Yes, I think, you know, with with Augur in particular, you know, the, the way I see it is that we really just wanted to create a very neutral platform. It's essentially a tool. So if you think about how, creating new books work before the printing press is extremely difficult. It's extremely expensive. You have to pay monks and scribes to copy them down. They make tons of mistakes. It wasn't systematic. Everything was bespoke custom solutions. After the printing press, uh, disseminating the book across the world became much simpler. Uh, you could do it in a systematic way. People could copy it. The prices of books collapsed. More people started reading them. And if you look at the financial system today, it's like before the printing press. So if you want to make it, enter into a new derivative contract or a new agreement, you have someone like Goldman write it up. You pay him a few million dollars to create this bespoke agreement, then you enter into it with a counterparty. And for the most part, they're not even exchange traded because they're all kind of bespoke instruments. That's if you want to create a new financial market that doesn't exist today. And there also aren't that many financial markets today. Uh, if you look at, you know, like the CME, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, or CBOE, there's only you know, maybe a couple hundred products you can trade on there. It's kind of like a world where there's only a couple hundred books. It's not nearly as interesting as it could be. And so I think when we look at kind of where Augur could be over the next five to 10 years, it's really about creating a generic neutral platform for people to create new financial markets and for there to be truly global access, fair trading, uh, it's all codified. And so I think that's that's kind of the, the idea. That's
5: the best analogy I've ever heard about Augur's potential. That's amazing. I'm totally going to steal that. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, yes, the thing is that Augur is an open source platform, and the instruments that are going to be created and the markets that are going to be created, we can't even fathom. The, the, every talk I give about Augur, every time I discuss this to a large audience, someone comes up with an, an, an amazing new use case. The, the, you can create a market for anything. With this platform, and I, I think that's the underlying innovation here. It won't be the forecast foundation that creates these markets, it'll be thousands or millions of people around the world. And that's what makes it so exciting.
0: Again, this has been Rick and Dave. Thanks for listening to this episode of Distributed Dialogues. We hope you'll tune into our next episode where we discuss the Eastern crypto market, including interviews with investment managers for two of the world's largest companies.